Man, it is, you know, there's something about kind of getting into the spring that kind of gets me excited. I, I just love the buildup to Easter, and, and it's really fitting that I, I really think we're going to kind of park Philippians, be done with it right about the time we hit Easter, and it's really kind of fitting because Easter is sort of that place where everything that we say we believe about God and the reality of who God is, where they kind of come to this place, this head, this collision, where if the resurrection didn't happen, that everything that you and I believe as followers of Christ is totally and completely in vain. And, and Easter is that expression of that. And we've been talking for the past few weeks in Philippians about <clears throat> the place where theology comes in an intersection and collision with how we live. That that place matters. And that at some point in time, our theology has to go from being cerebral, from being purely academic, to something that we talk about God to how it affects how I live. And, and Easter is sort of that culmination, that if, if this God that I say I believe in is real, and he really did do this for me, then everything in my life changes. And Philippians is bringing us to that place. We've been talking for the past weeks about theology and about my understanding of God, and do I really believe that God is who he says he is, and he loves me like he says he loves me, and that this Jesus is a life changer? And if so, how does that impact the way that I live? We are now into week 17 of this sort of exploration, verse-by-verse journey through the book of Philippians, and it's been kind of an incredible journey. We've gone from this call to unity and harmony and and this sort of central mission of the church to deep theological things, to the practice of living those out, and then last week we saw as we opened up chapter 4 that the letter takes a really personal turn. So we get, we reminded that we are eavesdropping into the lives of people. That as Paul writes this letter, he's writing to a group of people that he loves deeply and dearly. And we are allowed to eavesdrop, to peer into their communication. And it got real personal last week. It went from being this sort of call, big call to followers of Christ in the church to direct pointed comments toward two specific individuals. And last week we talked about the importance of gospel forgiveness and gospel reconciliation inside the context of broken relationship. And Paul basically calls out two women. He actually calls them by name and he says, I plead with you to be reconciled in the Lord to heal your relationship. And then he calls on the church and says, church, I plead with you to help them reconcile. Because why Paul, why Paul knew that brokenness was going to happen within the context of the church, he refused to allow it to take root. And so we dressed it. And we talked last, last week about a couple of beautiful things that come out of brokenness. And we talked about the fact that in broken relationship, in broken harmony, that we have that with someone else, that that's an opportunity for us to live gospel forgiveness and gospel reconciliation. That until we have a wounded or broken relationship, we can't live out that call of gospel forgiveness, gospel reconciliation. We talked about the importance that that is in our relationship. And I'll take it one step further, and what we're going to see today is that true maturity and completeness in Christ, right, can't happen as long as we're allowing brokenness and resentment and grudge holding and anger and fractured relationships to exist. We have to address the need and the severity of that disharmony so that we can be made complete in Christ and kind of grow into that um, sanctification, that process of being made mature that we've been talking about so much. So this week, what we're going to see is we're going to see, well, actually this week and next week, we're going to see four calls, four mandates or commands that Paul gives the church. And we're going to look at two of them this week and two of them next week. And they're coming on the heels of Paul's call to gospel forgiveness and gospel reconciliation. So we can't divorce the two. It's really easy to open the Bible and be like, oh, yay, I love Philippians 5. But if we look at Philippians 5 apart from Philippians 3, it's not near as amazing. But when we look at it in the context that, that Paul put it in, it's a world changer. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 4. If there's one around you, you can use it. Um, 
we're going to be in this thing every single week. I've told this to folks before. You can bring your own Bible to church. Like, if you have one, just bring it. I can make this promise. If we are going to not only be in it, we are going to dissect it every week. And if we don't, just get up and leave. Like, go find a church that does. So we are going to be in God's Word. So bring yours. If you don't have one and you want to keep the one that's in your chair, keep it. It's really fancy. Paperback, nice, you know. Buck and a quarter. You get to keep that one, and uh, we'd love for you to have it. So we can get more. We make more. We produce them. So uh, we want you to take that one with you. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 4. And in order to catch it in context, I'm going to read from verse 2 all the way down through verse 7. But we're going to pay attention to two small verses in the middle. And so before we open God's word together, let's take a moment and let's just pray. God, I thank you for not just all the things that are happening here, but for the, the promise um, that comes through Scripture. God, you are a God who fills all those promises. That God, you are a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And God, we're excited about the things that are happening in our church. But Lord, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm more excited about the things that are happening in the church, Big C. That Father, we are united this morning with believers all over the world. That our friends and believers in China, in Guatemala, in Bosnia, Father, in Africa, places that we've been and been a part of and met people there, that they're gathered in worship today. Maybe not right at this hour, but on this day They're gathered in worship, and we share in that as part of the bigger church. Sometimes it's so easy for us to focus on our little kind of mindset, our little corner here on 49th and Western, and forget that we are echoing the cry of believers all over the world, and that we are united in one voice to the same God, the same God who gave us life through Jesus Christ. So this morning as we gather, we're reminded of that. And God, we recognize that we can't learn anything um, without you from your word. So teach us. Take a moment and, and, and ask God to teach your heart this morning. Just whatever that phrase means to you, whatever else you want to sprinkle in there, just invite God to do that. God, I want you to teach me this morning. Just whisper that in your heart. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, even if you don't know them, even if you're here for the first time, you think it's kind of weird, just, just kind of pray for people around you. Be in the habit of just thinking about those folks around you and their relationship with the Lord. God, we gather in this place motivated and moved and changed by your extravagant love. Father, teach us through your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 4, verse 2 is where we're going to start, um, and we're going to go down through 7, and we're going to pay special attention to 4 and 5 today, 6 and 7 next week, and 2 and 3 was where we were yesterday, or last Sunday, but I want you to hear them in concert <clears throat> with what we're saying today. So this is Paul's, uh, Paul's words in, chap- in chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, present your request to God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So Philippians 4 through 7 are really four different mandates, calls, commands that Paul has that are very specifically related to this sort of picture of reconciliation that's laid out in verses 2 through 3. So I want you to keep those things closely in concert and context together because they're really important. But Paul kind of shifts in this kind of picture of, of, of living gospel forgiveness to the call that he gives the church. 
And now the church is sort of hearing these final words of Paul, and they're soaking these things in. And Paul reiterates a few things that he said before. And the two calls we're going to look at today is the call to cultivate a life of joy and to live gently. Now, joy is really interesting, right? Because Paul actually talks about it a ton. He talks about rejoicing, and he talks about joy in chapter 1, in chapter 2, chapter 3, and now he hammers it home again in chapter 4. So why is joy, why is talking about rejoicing so important? Why would it have been so radically important to the Philippians to hear? I mean, that's the kind of the question we're left with. In fact, it's so important that Paul says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord, and I will say it again, rejoice. Now, joy is something that we have, we've got to understand. Most of us have a perverted view of joy. We think that joy, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, is sort of connected to some kind of, uh, of emotion. We think it's connected to prosperity. We think it's connected to just sort of, you know, looking at the bright side of life. But really, that's a perverted picture of joy. Joy is something entirely different. And Paul is calling this group of Philippians in the middle of their life, in the middle of the difficulty that they're facing, to joy. Now, you've got to understand that we've been through this. The Philippians are not living lives right now that we would consider in a place of joyfulness. They are living in abject poverty. They're living in extreme persecution. And as we saw in verse 2 through 3, they're living in kind of a divisiveness. They're living in division. And the division was so strong, it wasn't just about two people that can't get along. Paul, 600 miles away, has heard about this. And he's writing a letter that will take a month and a half to even get there to address their need to reconcile. It wasn't like, oh, hug and make up. I mean, this was a big, broken relationship. So they're living in the middle of poverty and persecution and brokenness. And life right now does not feel all that joyful. I mean, when Paul shared the gospel with Lydia and with these other women down by the river and they first came to know Christ and the church in Philippi was born, I promise you they weren't thinking about this. Lydia was a very prominent businesswoman. She was a dealer in purple fabric. The one thing she wasn't thinking about is that when I say yes to this Jesus, my life is going to be in danger. This Christian life does not look like the brochure I thought I was getting into. I mean, have you ever had that happen? You ever decided you're going to stay at a place or a hotel or whatever, and you look online, and everything's all great, and a you know, guy's swimming there, and he's all got a perfect body, and she's running around like this. Everyone's happy, and you get there, and you're like slugs in your shower and stuff, and you're going, man, this is not look like a brochure. Well, the big joke when I went to seminary was that was exactly what happened. The website and the uh, pamphlets were like lush green grass, and there was an African-American guy and an Asian girl and a blonde-headed girl, and they were all holding hands in the grass. And they were eating their lunch and playing tag and having tickle fights. <laughs> I went to school, people fought and argued and failed, and I got angry, and I left. I didn't want to be there. And I was like, that is not the brochure. How come my Christian life is not all unicorns, rainbows, and bubble machines? Like... I expect this. I expect happiness and joy. And when I gave my life to Jesus, I expected everything to get better. But somehow, everything got worse or it got more complicated. And there's no bubble machines and rainbows. And I'm being persecuted and I'm struggling and life is hard. And so when Paul writes about joy, about rejoicing to the Philippians, he's talking about something very concrete and very real. And what I want us to understand, I'm going to unpack this for a little bit, is that we have got to understand this picture of joy and get that perverted picture of happiness and its sort of attachment to joy out of our heads. So we're going to talk this morning about cultivating a life of joy. And there's a few things I want you to understand. The first is that you and I, we were created to live a life of joy. We were created to live in joy. Now, I need you to understand this, not just nod your head to it. I want you to understand it from the very depth of your soul that you were created to live 
in joy. Jesus himself says it when he says in John chapter uh, 15, when he says this, I, Jesus, have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Peter puts it this way. Peter says that though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You and I were created to live in an unquenchable, inexpressible, undeniable joy. That's how we were created to live. We were not created to live in resentment, frustration, just getting by, or general okayness. But most of us have kind of categorized our lives that way. We think if I can just, if I can just look at the bright side, if I can just get by, then that's okay with me. But this is not what you were created for. Don't believe that lie. You were created for something that's inexpressible. As, as, as Peter says, an inexpressible, undeniable, deep joy. But see, most of us are content with just general okayness. So yeah, you know, there's people that are worse off than I am, and there's people that are struggling, and, and my life's not bad, and I've got stuff and things, and so I'm just okay. But joy, that kind of joy that you hear me talking about is not what's captured your heart. You lay in bed at night, and you wonder why everybody else seems to have it, and you don't. I need you to understand that you were created for this. And not just sort of that head nodding, no, I get it. No, I need you to know that. I'm going to talk about how in a minute, but I need you to know this is what you're created for, that that okayness that you're engaging in and living in is not what you were created to be a part of. God has created you for something so much greater and so much bigger that it's almost inexpressible and indefinable. So we were created for this bigger thing. And that's the word he's given to the Philippians. You were created for this bigger thing, and not joy that's attached to prosperity, but a joy that's bigger than what you're experiencing in your heart now. And not the promise to eliminate or alleviate, but the promise that's bigger. So I need you to understand, first of all, that this is what you were created for. Now, the second thing I want you to understand, I've said this a dozen times. You've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a dozen times. Joy and happiness are not the same thing, right? Joy and happiness, no, everybody would understand that. But the reality is they are so dramatically different. That not only is it not understanding them as being different, but attaching them together is dangerous. When we attach joy and happiness together, it's dangerous. Happiness is very much attached to circumstances in our life. When I get this, when I have this, when this is going right, I'm happy. When I receive a, a hug from my children or when I get a letter from a, a, a family or when I get this or I have that, then I'm happy. When things are going well, when job's working, when I'm getting my paycheck on time, whatever that is, I am happy. Joy is not attached to anything concrete or abstract. It's not attached to something. When happiness leaves, joy remains. Joy is something that transforms us that's completely different than happiness. Because the Philippians, living in poverty and persecution and broken relationship, Paul calls them to a life that's bigger than all that. Joy does not change those realities. Joy in, it does not change the fact that I'm struggling to feed my family. Joy does not change the fact that I feel very sad because my best friend, Yodia, who I grew up with and who I met Jesus with, we aren't talking. Joy doesn't change that. And joy doesn't change the fact that today could be the day that I wake up and I die because I believe in Jesus. That's what the Philippians were living in. But Paul says, in the middle of all of that, 
in the middle of all that, not happiness, not fake smile, kind of put on a better show, but in the middle of all that, you were created for something so much bigger. So we know we're created for it, and we know that it's not attached to that emotion of happiness. So where does it come from? Where does joy come from? Well, Paul says it really easy. He says, right, he says this, rejoice in the Lord. True, real joy comes only from knowing Jesus. Now, if you are not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian, you're saying, Treb, listen, I have never given my life to Jesus Christ. And hear me say this, and I'm just going to say this once. Real joy is a myth. It doesn't exist apart from Christ. So whatever you're chasing, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're filling your life in will never lead to joy. It may lead to layers of happiness and things that are working, but true, deep-seated, heartfelt, in the middle of chaos and catastrophe, joy doesn't exist without knowing Christ. And oftentimes, even as followers of Christ, we forget this or we misplace this. We forget that true joy comes only from knowing Jesus, and so we try and manufacture it. We try and make ourselves feel better. Go to the self-help section of your Christian bookstore and start reading titles. And they are all about rediscovering happiness. Rediscovering that joy. Find it, cultivate it, make it, create it, whatever it takes. But true joy comes from knowing Jesus. And I call it really the four no's, not N-O, but K-N-O-W. The four things that we have to know to understand where joy comes from. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I want to do them really quickly. The first one is, is it's about knowing you. Knowing who you really are. That you are totally and utterly sinful. The first thing where joy begins is knowing who you are, sinful and broken. I am a sinful and broken person. The second thing is knowing your reality. The reality is I can't fix that. There is nothing I can do to remedy my own sinfulness. I'm a mess and I'm broken and I can't rescue myself. So I know me, I know my reality. The third thing is about knowing love. That the God of the universe was so deeply and desperately in love with you that he sent his son Jesus to die to remedy your brokenness, to rescue your heart, to redeem you in the middle of what you couldn't do. God loved you that deeply. He loves you that much. That you are broken and helpless and God rescued you in Christ. So I know me, I know my reality, I know the love that would drive Jesus to the cross and then finally I know the promises. The promise that God says he will never leave us nor forsake us and that he is in total and absolute control. Joy begins here. I'm broken and sinful. I can't get my way out. God loved me so much anyway and he promises never to leave me and he is in total control even when the world goes to chaos. This is what Paul's reminding the Philippians that joy comes in the Lord because everything else around you may be falling apart. You may wake up and go, what happened? What did we sign up for? This does not look like the brochure. Life is hard. I thought when I said yes to Jesus, everything would get better. I'd get out of debt. I'd find a husband and it would all work out. And now all I'm discovering is that there's no guy out there that's good enough for me now. Things got more complicated. Joy begins when we know those things. So we're created to live in it. It's different than that emotion. Know that. Don't live in that lie. It comes from only knowing Jesus, and it begins there. Basically saying, Jesus, that whatever life has, you're enough for me. You are enough for me. 
And I'll tell you, it's one of the most difficult places to get to in your Christian life. When you can look at the world around you and everything that may or may not be going right or wrong, and you can say, God, no matter what happens, I win because I have you. That place is where joy begins, where it flourishes, and where it continues because I have Jesus. And no, I'm sad, and I'm hard, and it hurts, but I get Jesus. I win, and joy begins there. The the last thing about joy I want you to see is this, that last word. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. We talked about this three weeks ago or four weeks ago. We talked about the fact that both faith and suffering are gifts from God. Nobody likes to hear that, but that's true. Faith and suffering are gifts from God. We opened up the book of James chapter 1 where we saw that, that we consider it pure joy, my brothers, right? As James says, when we face trials of many kinds, we know the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Perseverance leads to character. Character leads to maturity in Christ. No matter what our circumstance, no matter how difficult it is, right, we rejoice where? In the Lord. Now, this does not mean we put on a fake smile and we smile that thing and we, we pretend it's all good and, and we just sort of take all those other things and we sweep them under the emotional rug. We don't even pretend like they're there. We just put them away. That hurt, that brokenness, that feeling of loss, those things that have broken and shattered our hearts, that we infractured a relationship, we lost them that we love, or we're just feeling general deep sadness. It's not about taking those things and pretending they're not there, sweeping under the rug and saying, look, I'm good now. That's not what this is about. Rejoicing in the middle of suffering means, even though, Jesus, I am so deeply hurting, and that hurt is so real, I have you. This is what Paul's telling the Philippians. He's not telling them that their struggles aren't real. He's not telling them their anxieties aren't powerful. We're going to talk about worry and anxiety next week. He's not telling them their anxieties aren't real. Their worries aren't real. Their hardships aren't real. He's not even telling them that they may not actually lose their life for the sake of Christ. He's not saying any of those things. He's just saying that always, whether things are amazingly great or whether they are at the deepest part of difficult, you get Jesus. I win. And God, it doesn't make me smile sometimes because my heart hurts and you created me as an emotional person. But I'm not going to let the enemy put a foothold in my life and steal my joy. So we've got this picture. Now, I, I kind of framed this idea as cultivating joy. And I chose that word. And I chose that word cultivating for those kind of four principles because it takes work. Cultivating joy means that you've got to be willing to fight, and I mean really fight against the lie of connecting happiness and joy together, that if I can just get that one more thing, that one more item, that one person, that one fix, then everything in my life will come together. I'm just waiting on that, whether it's a a wife or a new job or a, a thing or whatever, or just fix that one emotional, if I can just do that, then it's a lie. Cultivating our heart, cultivating a life of joy means I've got to work the soil of my mind and my heart to not believe the lie. To say, God, I want to be at a place where I say life is imploding all around me, but I get you. And even in the middle of things going really, really well, I don't want to be seduced by the lie that says this is what life's about. I want to fight against that. I want to cultivate joy in my life that says it's not about this. Take it all away. Strip it all from me. I'm okay with that because what I'm left with is still left with you. This is what Paul's telling the church in Philippi. He's saying, listen, in the middle of where you are, rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, it's so important. I'll say it again, rejoice. 
So we've got this call to cultivate a life of joy. And then Paul shifts into a little different area, which seems like they're not connected real well. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Seems like an odd partner to joy or an odd command, but, but there's, a, there's a reality there that's really important. I'm not going to spend much time because I, I used up most of my time earlier, but I want you to hear this because living gently is really important. If you connect that to what happened in 2 and 3, broken relationship, this, this church is fractured and the relationships are broken and people are wounded. And Paul says, live gently. Right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Paul's talking about the direct connection between reconciliation and gospel forgiveness and how we live. He's calling us to live in a way that reflects this deep love for the Lord. And you know what he uses for that example? He says the Lord is near, meaning God's coming back. Jesus is coming back, and he can be back at any moment. A couple of things I want you to think about there. Have you ever been in a fight with, um, not like a fist fight, MMA fight or whatever, but um, a verbal fight with your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, uh, in public, ever been in one of those? And, or somewhere in public, or someone walks in the room when you're in a verbal, now I know I have, you haven't, I know, but like, I've been there, and someone walks in the room, right, as that sort of heated moment is engaging, and what happens? It's like the well dries up. Everybody goes totally silent, crickets, right? I mean, this happened to me not too long ago. I turned the corner, and I walked into a room where a couple in our church, and of course it wasn't you, were going at each other. I mean, just tearing it up. And I turned that corner, and it was like, boom, everybody was stopped, and we were we were, we were caught red-handed, it was awkward and weird, and I wanted to leave, but then they can't, they don't fight, pick it back up, everything's kind of strange now, and we stopped, and this weird person intersect, and it was just like, I'm found out, I'm found out. You know what Paul's doing here? He's basically using the Lord in here as one of the reasons why not to even engage in that kind of brokenness. Live gently, treat each other with kindness and respect. Why? Because God's coming back at any moment. The first thing is remember that God will show up. He can show up in the middle of any moment, not just as the return of Christ, but in the middle of our lives. And the thing I want you to see there is this. Do you know how much time we waste in our lives giving attention to resentment and frustration and anger in relationships? I know people that have not spoken to someone in years, not only out of spite, but just out of principle. Broken relationships, and that has kind of eaten away at their heart I mean, just for years, left to brokenness. Do you really, Paul's saying, have time for that? If the church allows its own division divisiveness to eat away at it, we're missing the window that God is coming back and we are called to go and tell a broken and dying world without Jesus about the God that loves him. And what are we doing? We're spending all of our time infighting, dealing with broken relationship. Who's got time for that? Sweet Brown. Ain't nobody got time for that. Right? God's coming back. Live your life as if he was walking in the middle of the room with you. And let go of the principles that just say, I'm going to fight this for the sake of fighting it. And say, you know what, I want to be about reconciliation and forgiveness. If I were to ask your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, I'd say, do this person, do they treat you with gentleness? Not weakness, not physically, but gentleness. And is that evident to the world around you? Now, I know couples that are really wonderful at home together, but when they get out, a husband will make his wife kind of the butt of all his jokes. Destroys her heart. Is that gentleness evident to everyone? 
It's one thing to be this together, but it's another thing to be that out here. Is your gentleness of spirit evident to the world? We don't have time to engage in broken relationship. Live in gospel forgiveness and reconciliation because that's what God did for you. That's the picture of joy. So let your gentleness, which is ultimately an expression of God's love for you lived out in the world, be evident to all. Why? Because God's near. God is near. These things, living gently and living in joy, are really reflections of God's incredible love poured out for us. That's all they are. The reflections of what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, which is the picture of this table. We celebrate communion once a month, and this table really is the picture of God's extravagant love laid out for us, poured out for us, and what we could not do for ourselves. As we prepare to take part in this together, let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us.